Well, praise God. It's so good to be here this morning and be singing and praising God with everyone. I'm excited to continue on in Ephesians. So please turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2. It happens that we fall now upon a wonderful and famous short passage in Ephesians. We're going to read verse 8 to verse 10. And I believe this is a really significant morning. I believe that in all that God is doing here and what he wants to do in us as believers and as saints, that the message that he wants to communicate from this verse, just this passage, is extremely significant. So, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Lord, I pray that you would take this passage and that you would speak from this passage, Lord, and that we would hear your voice only and not the voice of men or the voice of anything other than your own voice, God. And I just pray that we would hear and rejoice in this, what you have to share. Please give us the spirit to see and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. There's two very famous declarations that have taken place in United States history. And they're famous because, they must be famous because I learned about them in Canada, in school. But there's the uh, Declaration of Independence. That's a famous declaration in U.S. history. And the Emancipation Proclamation, right? The Declaration of Independence was in 1776. It was when the United States declared their independence from the government of England and said, we are no longer part of the British Commonwealth. We want nothing more to do with... I mean, they didn't say we want nothing more to do with you. They said, it would be great to have a friendship with you, but we don't like the terms right now. So we're declaring our own independence. The 13 colonies says, we declare we're our own nation now, and we are not subject to the British government any longer. A turning point in not only U.S. history, but the world, monumental turning point in the world history. And... The Emancipation Proclamation, 1862, was uh, when Abraham Lincoln declared that the slaves were free. He said, we're abolishing slavery. If you're a slave, you're free to go. And that was another huge event in American history. Huge event. These declarations happened. And um, the word declare, our English word, is a Latin, comes from a Latin word, actually. And it means to make clear to free from obscurity, to make plain, to make known, to tell explicitly, to manifest or communicate plainly to others with words. So the idea of to declare something is to make clear something or to remove all doubt or obscurity, to make it known. The word declaration is the same idea, but it's public. To make a declaration is to make a public enunciation or proclamation. So it's to make clear something publicly. 
publicly announce this. This is, this is the truth. This is what is clear. And let there be no doubt about it. So if there's any confusion, here's the declaration. And a declaration is needed. Is, it, there's times when things need to be declared, right? There are times when something needs to be made clear. And it's when there's confusion, it's when there's conflict, when there's disagreement, then there's a time for declaration. And think about these guys in America, let's say, around the time of the 1776, and they're, they're, they're sitting around a table, and there's confusion, and there's conflict, and they're discussing the fate of America, and they're discussing the uncertainty of the day, and they don't know which way things are going to go. And then all of a sudden, someone comes running in and says, America has declared independence. Now the confusion is gone. They know the way things are going to go. Okay, we know now that we're going to be free. Or imagine, imagine a family of slaves in, in around the time of the Civil War, and they're uncertain about the way things are going to turn out. And for fear of the worst, they decide to just continue doing what they've been doing and submitting to their slave masters, and they go into the field. They know that there's all this talk about slavery being abolished, but they just don't know. And so they just continue. But then one day, the headlines say, Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation. And they realize, we're free. There was confusion about it, but we're free. There was a declaration made. And actually, they were free the moment Lincoln signed that declaration, or that proclamation. But until the news got to them, they didn't know, right? When Lincoln abolished slavery, they were free. And it was illegal for them to be slaves now. But it wasn't until the news reached them that they realized they were really free. Now, here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, who's been taking us on a tour of heaven, we've been seeing the most incredible, rich, amazing things, and the things that are behind, going on behind the scenes in heaven uh, when we talk about the, the things that have taken place on the earth and God's works in the, in the earth. We're seeing from heaven's perspective. We're seeing life from heaven's perspective. And Paul's taking on this tour. But he pauses again here. And he doesn't pause to pray this time. You remember he paused to pray in verse 15. But here he pauses to make a declaration. Something needs to be clear at this point. Something needs to be declared to remove all doubt Paul pauses to make a declaration. And we could call this here the Christian declaration. This is the Christian declaration. And it's different than, say, the book of Romans. Say, why is this a declaration? Well, it's got all the character of a declaration. It's got the character of a little creed. You see, in the book of Romans, Paul goes after chapter after chapter after chapter, and he's opening up and he's teaching all these rich things about what we find in such a concise, summarized form here. You don't find that in Romans, actually. I, I, I love reading the book of Romans, and I, I, I look through Romans, and there's no real declaration or statement or one little summarized verse you can just point to that sums it all up. Because it's all there, but it's just broad. And he's teaching this whole thing in these chapters. And there's certainly quotable verses that sum up certain aspects. But to sum up the whole gospel, the whole uh, theology of Paul, the whole doctrine of, of salvation, it's right here, and there's really no place like it in all of Scripture. It's concise, 
It's complete and it's carefully worded by Paul. How many times have you ever quoted this before when you're witnessing to a non-believer? Or when you're discussing the, the gospel? It, it's, it's because it's a saying. It's because he has made it so concise for us. It's, so, it's such a wonderful common verse that we frequently turn to it to explain what the gospel is. How can I just, what, what one verse can I go to? Usually it's like, what one verse can I go to just explain everything I'm trying to say? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? The declaration is there because he doesn't want us to be confused about everything that he's been saying. So just so you know, this is to be made clear. And not just for you Ephesians, but for the whole world. This is the declaration of Christianity. And the declaration itself is actually verse 8 and 9. I believe, with verse 10 as a little appendix to it. So verse 8 and 9 is this little statement or this saying, and verse 10 is an appendix. So we're going to look at that now this morning. So let's look at this declaration that Paul makes, this proclamation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved. In the Greek, it actually is, for by the grace are you saved. There's an article there. For by the grace you are saved. And why does he say the grace? Because he's referring to the grace he's been talking about. So the grace that I've been talking about, that's the grace that you're saved by. Now the question is, well, how far back do you trace this grace then in his letter? Do we just immediately go to verse 7 where it says, In the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by the grace you are saved, that grace. Do we just go back one verse? But grace has been the theme of everything we've been reading, hasn't it, in Ephesians. Right from the very beginning, Paul's got this theme of grace. That grace is doing everything, is behind everything. God's grace is the reason and the cause for all these things. So in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, All things are to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath graced us in the beloved. And in verse 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. It's according to that, or in conformity with his grace. And then you go to chapter 2, and in verse 5, Paul says that we are saved by grace. He says the same thing. But in verse 5, he's making the point that it's by grace that we're saved because when we were dead in sins, he quickened us together with Christ. So because we were dead in sins, and at that moment, at that time, in that condition, we were quickened, that's grace. By grace you're saved, verse 5. And in verse 7, again, it just comes full circle. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. So you can't trace it back just to 7. It's everything he's been saying. Everything Paul has been teaching and showing us in heaven has been because of grace. Grace is the foundation for the whole thing. And so it's referring to that grace, the grace he's been talking about when he says, it's by grace, the grace, that you're saved. Now is a good time to ask the question, what is grace? Right? What is grace? What is it? Is there a definition? Is there a meaning that we can hold on to to understand what this wonderful word means and what this wonderful word is? Now, how many of you have ever heard the definition of grace 
unmerited favor. How many of you have you ever heard that before? That's common, right? What is grace? Oh, grace is unmerited favor. But have you ever wondered how people came up with that definition? I mean, is it just something we've been told, we picked it up along the way, throughout the course of church history, some guy maybe in you know, the 1700s maybe coined that phrase. And so we say, grace is unmerited favor. Is that where it came from? Where do we get that definition from? Now the word grace in the Greek is this word charis. And the word charis is used not only in the Bible, but in all sorts of secular Greek literature of those days of the ancient world. Charis is a common word, and it actually has a variety of meanings, a variety of usages. So some of the less common usages would be the word charis is used to describe loveliness or that which brings you pleasure or that which brings you joy. So people will talk about his, his words are gracious or his words are charis. It means, but they don't mean he is being gracious. They mean his words are pleasant to my soul. Or pleasant to my ear. Certainly it's connected with the fact that he's being gracious in his words. But the word means when you describe something like that beautiful sunset, you could even use the word charis there. Or that beautiful waterfall, that scenery. Or this beautiful meal. Those are le- it's a less common way it's used. Another way, less common, the way word charis is used is to be thankful. Is in thankfulness. Have you ever said grace? When you ate food, do you know where that comes from? That's because the word also is used to mean thankfulness. And where do we get this from? Because in Latin, the word grace is is gratia, and this is where we get the word gratitude. So it comes back to this word grace. Gratia in Latin is where we get gratitude. It's also where we get gratify. So which is what I was saying before. It brings you pleasure. There's a gratification about grace. There is a gratitude about grace. But those are lesser used um, meanings. Now here's the more common one that's used in the Bible and outside of the Bible. It's this idea of graciousness and favor and goodwill and loving kindness. It's a disposition of goodwill and favor. This is the common usage of the word grace. And so... You have in the, both in the Hebrew, also in the Old Testament, and in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You say, it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's the same word, grace, when it was translated by the Greek Jews. And in, in Hebrew, it's the same idea. It's favor. Grace is favor. So if I am gracious towards Terry, I'm showing her favor. I'm showing her goodwill. I'm showing her kindness. This word grace. But here is the point of clarification. What kind of favor are we talking about? Is it unconditional favor or is it conditional favor? That's the question. Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. But was that conditional grace? Was it conditional favor? Did Noah find favor from God because he was a good guy? Or was it unconditional favor? We all understand that it's favor. But the question is, is it merited or is it unmerited? Is it conditional or is it unconditional? Is God gracious and kind and favorable toward us 
because of some kind of merit that we have done or work that we have done, or is it not? What is this grace? The definition or the answer to that question comes from the apostles in the New Testament. Because before that, the word grace was just favor and it could be used as unconditional or conditional. Sometimes it was used as unconditional. Sometimes it was used as conditional. It could be used in different ways. The word just meant I was being favorable. I was being favorable. I received grace or favor from God. But it was when the apostles began to preach grace in the New Testament that this word grace took hold as unmerited favor It superseded all other definitions and it spread all around the world so that today when we say grace, we think unmerited favor. We think the favor of God that comes not because of uh, something in us, but just because of him. It's unconditioned. It just freely comes from him. But it's because of the preaching of the gospel that this word took meaning. Now, how do we know? Or where do we find this? Because in the Bible, there is no verse you can point to. There's no verse in the Bible you can point to and say, here, the definition of grace is grace equals, etc. You can't just turn to a, a verse in the New Testament that just says what grace is explicitly. But, all over the New Testament, there's many verses you can turn to that reveal what grace means implicitly. It doesn't explicitly define it like in a Webster's Dictionary but it implicitly defines it because of the way that it's used. I'm just going to give two examples here this morning because there's, there's multiple places I can go. But seeing that we're looking at Paul here in Ephesians 2, and he says, by grace you're saved. Let's find out what Paul means by grace. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. This is the first one we'll go to. Where it does not explicitly define grace, which we know already to be favor from God, but it implicitly defines it. So in Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, it says this. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that does not work, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So particularly if you look at verse 4, Paul's contrasting these two people, and he says this first guy, if he works, for what? In context, he's talking about salvation and justification. If he works for that, then it isn't grace. It would be debt, or God would owe him. He would have met the conditions, and then he would have received justification, but it wouldn't be grace. So by this, we realize what kind of favor we're talking about. And we realize what grace really is. It's not something you work for. Otherwise, it's not grace. It's not conditioned. It's not merited. Otherwise, it's not grace. So Paul says, it's the man who receives justification without working. It's just freely given. That is the man who receives grace. He didn't condition it. He didn't merit it. He got it from God because God was gracious to him without owing him anything. The next one is in Romans chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. And this is even perhaps more clear in its implication. Romans 11, 5 and 6. 
Now, this time it's talking about another thing other than justification. It's talking about election. But the word grace is applied in the same way. It says in verse 5, Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So here again, he says, if you get election, because this is what he's talking about, conditionally or meritoriously based upon your works, it ceases to be grace. Grace isn't grace anymore. And obviously, someone's trying to say it is because he has to make this so clear. It ceases to be grace if you have to work for it or if it's conditioned upon your works. Get the picture? So this word is packed with this idea of favor, but we're finding it now used by the apostles as this unmerited favor. If you have to work for it, he's saying, it's not unmerited. It's not unconditional grace and favor from God. This is what he's saying. And so the, the word took hold. And because of the, the impact of Christianity in the world, this word charis became the word unmerited favor. The meaning was unmerited favor. It's actually a beautiful meaning, that word. When you think of grace, you think of Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, but he found it unmerited. It was unconditioned. Noah found favor from God. It's beautiful. But... One thing I want to say, it's both unmerited and it's favor. Let me say that again. Grace is both unmerited, but it's also favor or goodwill or graciousness from God. And I think that as Christians, especially as we discuss the gospel, we often forget that there's two aspects to grace. And grace sometimes becomes for us just this word that means unmerited. So even when we read Ephesians 2.8, by grace you're saved, or it's unmerited. Now when you think about grace, do you just immediately think, you don't work, that's all it means. Grace means you don't work for it. It does mean that. But is that all it means? Is it just you don't work for it? I'm saved by grace, what I mean is I don't work for it. It's true, but is that all grace means? When you think about grace, are you quick to just give it that technical, clinical view? Or have we forgotten that when we say, as believers, we are saved by grace, we mean we are saved because God has been favorable and kind and gracious towards us, and that unmerited. Do you see what I'm saying? When you think, I'm saved by grace, do you just think, I'm not saved by my works? Or do you think, I'm saved because God is good and gracious toward me? What does it say in verse 7 of chapter 2? That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. May we never have a definition of grace that's simply clinically, technically not of works and unmerited. And that is true. But it's this unmerited favor of God. If you're saved today, if you're a believer, you're not just not saved by works. God is favorable towards you like he was to Noah. 
He looks upon you and you found favor, grace in his sight. He was kind and merciful and compassionate towards you. And you didn't deserve that. That's grace. And I confess, I think I've been a little too clinical with the word. Because I'm dealing all the time with, is it of works? Is it of grace? No, it's not of works. It's grace. It's not of works. And that's absolutely true. But it's this lavish kindness of God that's unmerited that comes to us. This is what Paul means in the declaration to the world that he wants to make it clear and let no one be confused. We are saved by grace. This is the message of the gospel. We are saved by grace. Not just, not of works, but we're saved by the kindness and goodness and mercy and love and compassion of God. That's the message of this declaration. So let's not read over grace too quickly. Let's just not tag on not of works or unmerited, but unmerited favor. And put those two things together and you've got the biblical New Testament definition of what grace is. Now here in verse 8, it's very simple, but it's also very profound. These two words, for by grace are you saved, simple, right? But there's these profound worlds of theology within these words. Saved, for instance. By grace are you saved. In that word is you're a child of wrath before you're saved. You're under the condemnation of God. God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. And you need to be saved from that. And you are saved from that by God's grace. So the word saved, we know what it means. But there's this rich theology under that word of of the wrath of God and the law of God and the judgment of God that we're saved from. But in this word grace, more importantly, there's a rich and profound and deep theology in the word grace or unmerited favor. This theology of grace... It contains the cross, it contains Christ crucified, it contains the redemption, it contains the blood of Jesus. How does grace come to us? It comes to us because of the blood of Christ. Otherwise it ceases to be grace. It's not grace unless it's righteous grace. Because grace isn't leniency, as we've discussed many times in the bookstore. Grace isn't just unmerited favor that's illegal. You know? God is illegally giving us favor that's unmerited. God, you're being completely unrighteous in treating sinners who deserve to go to hell graciously. That's completely wrong of God to do that. But the very theology of grace is God can give sinners unmerited favor because of Jesus Christ and his death and his shed blood. There's a rich theology in this word grace. A rich theology here. And if without that theology, without the blood of Jesus, without the cross, without the death, without the substitution, there is no grace that can come to us. There's no grace whatsoever. And you can define grace as unmerited favor all you want. It cannot come to you without the theology of the cross. It cannot come to you. And that is why only Christians can make this declaration. By grace you're saved. Only Christians. Only Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ can say it's grace. And never be fooled by any phony who comes and says, oh, we believe we're saved by grace too. Because it's not true. You cannot have grace 
without the theology of the cross. It's absolutely impossible. The theology of grace completely excludes every other religion and every other message besides the one and only message of Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. That's it. There is no other. Now, if we substituted the word grace here for works, if we said, by works you are saved, we could have all sorts of variety of religion there. Because every religion could present their system of works, their theology of works. How are we saved by works? Well, do these works and you'll be saved. Or do these works and be saved. Or do these works and be saved. When you put grace, there's only one theology that fits. You can't have grace any other way. God can't treat sinners with unmerited favor except that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all their sin and they aren't saved by works. But that that death accomplishes the whole thing and causes grace, causes God to be able to give us grace. There's only one theology that fits with this word, and there's no other. There's no variety whatsoever. Only Christians can declare we're saved by grace. So this is something we need to proclaim and declare because we're the only ones who can. But at the same time, we're not to be fooled by others who bring another gospel and yet say, we believe in grace. That's what Paul was talking about in Galatians 1.6. When he said, I marvel that you are removed to another gospel. You're removed from the grace of Christ unto another gospel. You're removed from the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Because another gospel, there's no grace of Christ. And you can say grace all day and it's not grace. Because there's only one gospel of the grace of Christ. That's the one that we believe as Christians. Salvation by grace through faith without works. Because of the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And that's why in Acts, in chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says, I testified of the gospel of the grace of God. He put those two things together. The gospel of the grace of God. That's the gospel. And there is no grace of God outside of the gospel. That's it. The gospel of the grace of God. So don't be fooled, but rejoice. And proclaim it, because you can, as a Christian. For by grace are you saved. The next part. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So here is it, it is explicitly stated how grace comes to us. It comes to us through faith. It doesn't say, by grace you are saved plus faith, or by grace plus faith. Notice, it says through faith, not plus faith. It is grace that saves us, not faith. And grace comes to us and saves us through faith. Grace alone, with all that rich theology and the unmerited favor of God, saves us from our sins and it alone saves us through faith, through the instrumentality of faith. Clearly here, faith is not a work. As he says, we're saved through faith, not of works. So faith isn't a work. Anyone who says faith is a work doesn't understand what faith is. Faith is simply an instrument or a channel. Much like, and I wish I was more scientifically minded, but I'm not, 
But like the sun shines to us, the sun itself brings us energy and warmth and light, but it travels through the air. Not scientifically minded, but the air doesn't bring us those things. The sun does, but it travels through that to us. There is a quote I want to read to you in this book, God's Way of Peace, which, by the way, is one of the most wonderful books ever by a guy named Horatius Bonner. He was a Scottish minister. And he said this of faith, and I think he just says it so well, what faith is. He says, True faith is what may be called colorless like air or water. It is but the medium through which the soul sees Christ, and the soul as little rests on it and contemplates it as the eye can see the air. The meaning is this. When we are believing on Jesus Christ, we're not even thinking about our faith. We're thinking about Jesus. We're looking at him. We're looking at Jesus. We're not looking at our faith. Or as another man put it, it's like a telescope. You look through it to see the moon, but you don't look at the telescope because then you won't be seeing the moon. Right? Faith It's just the channel. Let us take our eyes off even faith and put it on Jesus because we might even be realizing we're believing and we are as long as we're just looking at him because that's all faith is. Because the power is in Christ. The grace that saves us is in Christ. And all we need to do is just receive that. And we receive that simply by faith. This very simple thing like air or water just comes to us. The controversy is always over this reception of grace. How does one receive grace? But here it says it's through faith. And by the way, in verse 9, Paul doesn't say not through works. He says not of works. And the reason he says it's not through works, it's a whole different Greek word than what he uses in verse 8 when he says not through faith, is because he's not contrasting the reception of grace by either faith or by works. He's not contrasting those two things. He's not saying, by grace we are saved through faith, not through works. He's not contrasting faith and works as a receptor or reception of grace at all. Because that's impossible. That's an an oxymoron to say you receive grace by works or through works. It doesn't make any sense to even say that, so he doesn't even consider that. Let it be known that you can't say you're saved by grace through works. It's impossible. You can't say, yeah, it's all Jesus that saves me, but it comes to me through works. That doesn't make any sense. If it is by works, then it's not of grace, as we read earlier. So he doesn't even consider that or give that the time of day. What he's contrasting is actually this. If you notice in the, in the grammar in our Bibles here, in verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith is one sentence with no commas or semicolons or colons. He's contrasting grace through faith with works as a completely separate way of salvation. He's saying this is the way we are saved. We are saved by grace through faith. We are not saved by works or of works. He's contrasting those two ways, the way of grace through faith and the completely different way of works. Because when you want to be saved by your works, all you've got is works. There's no grace. Faith is made void. All that matters is your works. That's, that's what he's saying here. The way we are saved in this declaration, he says, to the whole world, we are saved by grace through faith. We are not saved by works. Period. 
And the whole issue is glorying. Because if we're saved of works, if we're saved by works, then the man that works can boast. But if we're saved by grace through faith, then the man that believes can't boast because he's saved by grace. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. This is a wonderful verse to remember. It says, Therefore it is by faith that it might be by grace. We're not saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. And that's the only way we can be saved by grace. The only way for it to be the unmerited favor of God is by faith, which isn't a work, but just a receiving of that favor. That's all it is. Just like the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln signed the proclamation and all the slaves are free and all they had to do is hear the word and believe it and walk out of there. It didn't make them free. They were free already. They just had to walk out. And God's merciful favor in his grace has been revealed to all men, the Bible says. And all they have to do is hear that and believe it. I heard this example the other day. I'll grab the book again. That if I wrote this book, me, Eli Braley, then I could be pretty proud about it. I could boast. I could glory in it because I wrote it. But if I didn't write it and Bonner wrote it, then I can be thankful for the book, but I can't boast in it, right? I can't brag about anything about me. I can be thankful for the book, but I can't brag anymore about it. And so it is. Our salvation is God's doing and not my doing. I can be thankful. We can praise God and rejoice in his grace, but there's nothing that we can boast in. It's a gift of God, it says, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's contrasted with, lest any man should boast. I can't boast because it's not even me. And God excludes all of our boasting by the gospel. So that's the declaration. Hear it loud and clear and remove all obscurity. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Plain and simple. Some people think the reformers made that up. If you thought that was Reformation teaching, you're wrong. That is pure, ancient, orthodox, apostolic Christianity. And that wasn't something that was picked up along the way throughout the ages with theologians pouring over the Bible and coming up with things. This isn't your friendly neighborhood theologian doctrine. This is the doctrine of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're saved by grace, unmerited favor that comes to you, not of your works. Now lastly, we'll look at the appendix here. A little appendix to the saying. It says, For we are his workmanship. That's the emphasis. His workmanship. We are his workmanship and not our own, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Now we're back up in heaven. I believe Paul resumes the tour right here. He's stopped and paused and made that statement and he declared something. Something needed to be clear so there's no uncertainty about all these things. By grace through faith, not of works. 
Now we resume the Torah, and from heaven's perspective, we suddenly see that we're his workmanship. We're God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus. The same ver- Actually, the, this word created is used only twice in the New Testament. And the other places in Romans 1, when it says that the uh, invisible things of God are clearly seen from the things that he's made. So just like the first creation, you got the second creation. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. This is what we see from heaven's perspective. Those who have believed on Christ and received his grace are the workmanship of God. They're not their own workmanship. And this, by the way, what we see from heaven's perspective is completely the opposite of what we hear from earth and what the message of the world is. Because the message of the world is this. You're never going to be anybody. Oh, make something of yourself. Do something with yourself. Be all that you can be. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make yourself somebody. If you want it, go and get it. And there's some truth to that on an earthly level, but not in heaven. There's no truth to that whatsoever. Because nobody made it to heaven by pulling themselves up and making something of themselves. That's the message of the world. But that's not the message of God. Because we're his workmanship and we're not our own workmanship. We didn't pull ourselves up. We didn't say, well, I'm just going to get out of this mud hole and I'm just going to stop my sins. I'm just going to be righteous and make it to heaven because that's where I'm supposed to be and what I need to do. And I'm the only one who can do it. The gospel is about God taking absolute nobodies and making them his daughters and his sons. He's not waiting for, well, who's going to step up and be my son? Who will rise up against these evildoers? (laughs) The Lord looks upon the children of man. He sees that there's nobody that seeks God and there's nobody that's righteous, no, not one. And so God comes and makes us and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It's not about being all that you can be. The gospel's about God's workmanship, not our own. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just beautiful? He takes sinners who are sinners indeed and totally sinful and lost in their sin and he in Christ Jesus through his unmerited favor and his redemption saves these people and makes a nobody a somebody. And we're his workmanship. It's the complete opposite message that the world has. Never merge the world's ideas and religion. Never do that. Because all religion is like that outside of this. They're just merging these two ideas. Well, in, in the real world, they say, you have to you know, work hard and you need to get a job and you need to make something of yourself. So therefore, it's the same in, 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 with your spiritual life as well. It's not true. It's a declaration of dependence, not independence. God, I need you. <laughs> I can't do it. Please do it all for me. I've heard the good news that you've done it all for me. That you'd save someone like me, a nobody. So, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, created anew, this is the declaration that we alone can declare. Let us rejoice in God's grace and His unmerited favor. Let's bless and proclaim and praise God and share with others and declare like this, Because we have a message to declare to the world that it's by grace that we're saved. And let's walk in those works that he's prepared us to do. And I believe this is the work he's prepared for us to do, is to rejoice and proclaim to the world, rejoice in and proclaim 
that we're saved by grace. Amen? Amen.